Welcome back to this week's episode of Rising Giants with your hosts, Max and Dom. On this week's episode, we have a very special guest, Tomasz Pokorny. Tomasz has had a very successful career, personally taking on many different challenges early on, starting as an aviation engineer, working in many diverse environments around the world, and ultimately landing in Cambodia, founding his own ventures, and becoming CEO of PiPay, one of Cambodia's most successful e-payment service and payment infrastructure providers that focuses on merchant payments and users and data engagement. He is passionate about the fintech industry and is one of the hardest working individuals we have had the pleasure of speaking with today on the show. Today, Tomas is currently working as a board director at Cambodia Association of Finance and Technology, an organization that connects communities across various business verticals with finance and technology industry and to provide and drive towards digitalization of Cambodia's economy. In addition, he is currently co-founder and group CEO of Brixie, a fintech investment startup that is working to provide opportunities for users to own real estate through the tokenization of these assets. In the episode, we dive into Tomasz's early career success and what it was like building and leading PiPay, one of Cambodia's most successful e-payment service providers, what Tomasz is currently working on, Brixie, a fintech investment startup that is working to provide opportunities for users to own real estate through tokenization of these assets, and learning to say no, how Tomas's balances work and life as a successful CEO and startup founder in Cambodia. We hope you enjoy the show. Okay, great. Okay, so let's get started. And and it's it's Tomas, is that correct? Yeah, I actually, it's funny funny to ask most people asking, but I, I really never almost uh, re- recognized or realized the difference. Right, mm-hmm. you know, once people try to pronounce age or not to pronounce age, yeah, my name is without age, but uh, whatever, however, <laughs> whatever you feel, you know, if you wouldn't say it in Czech, it would be Tomasz, which yep. which is kind of no, nobody's using anyway. So <laughs> Tomas, yeah, it, it's it's actually funny even just getting into it. I uh, my family is from Czech Republic as well. So they immigrated to I, the U.S. I thought yeah. so. I didn't want to ask, but <laughs> your your surname is definitely like very very Czech surname. Yeah, it is. Yeah, but, uh, but, the, I, but I, then I look on your LinkedIn, you know, and I saw everything U.S. University and everything. So I say, eh, maybe maybe not. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, my uh, yeah, my uh, my mom. She uh, both my parents immigrated over, but. Uh, my mom earlier than my dad did. They they met here in the U.S. or I guess in the U.S. Um, and my mom's family started a, a restaurant in Ohio called uh, in a small town called the Old Prague. Ironically, mm, so I, I heard um, about it. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, yeah. So great. Anyway, let's uh, let's kick things off. So, uh, Tomash, thank you so much for joining us on Rising Giants today to kick things off. Can you talk to us a little bit about your journey leading up to your move to Cambodia in 2014? Uh, sure. Uh, I'll try to make it short because otherwise it will be like one hour story of how I got into Cambodia. But essentially, <laughs> I, I started in uh, aviation. So I studied aviation engineering. I was flying back in Czech Republic. Uh, it was expensive, extremely expensive school for me. So uh, there was a lot of uh, a lot of debt I had to take on, and uh, at some point that that uh, had to be had to be paid, and in some extent still has to be paid. So there was a lot of uh, 
errors around you know early entrepreneurship career of mine when i was 18 18 years old child trying to make money for my own uh pilot license but in the end i got a pilot license uh went to kuwait to make money for it uh started working there uh, kind of working my way up a ladder to become commercial pilot because once you, even once you have license you still need to you know uh, get uh, employed you need to get more hours uh, in a cockpit so i was working between a cabin crew and uh, test pilot and few few other few other gigs here and there um, and then my eyes went sideways and that was kind of pivotal moment for me because i had to decide what i will do forward will i invest a lot of money into trying to get myself sorted and put all my faith into aviation or will i uh, kind of strategically pivot so i decided for that latter one i strategically pivoted towards uh, finance management because you know in aviation engineering is a lot of tech so digital side was always there for me and uh, so i started doing the different courses and uh, online mba in finance management and uh, that throughout connections that i've built up led me to uh, states where I started my first uh, fintech startup or joined uh, existing one as one of the co-founders or partners. It was credit card processing facility uh, out of Florida. And from there went uh, to Asia. We had great idea, which wasn't that great in the, in the end of doing this in Cambodia because there was no competition. And we learned very quickly it was a great idea, but uh, not having competition doesn't mean that we have customers. So the business plan, business concept, everything worked well, but simply we came too early. Uh, but because I moved already uh, together with my wife here, uh, we decided to stay and uh, try to make best out of that move. My wife's Filipina, so Cambodia back then, uh, 2011 to 2015 was very easy country to enter and to get, uh, regardless of what country you are from, and to get visa uh to start your own business uh, so it, it was really welcoming to uh, entrepreneurs who starting from scratch so we just decided to stay on and uh rest of it is history i would say great and kind of looking back in those early years of startup creation and operations what do you think were some of the biggest takeaways that helped shape your early career do uh, you mean kind of uh, pe people that, that shaped uh, shaped me, or uh, can can you help me to be more specific so I know where to where to start and you know? Sure. Yeah. Maybe just an experience uh, around experiences that, um, like maybe specific experiences that you had that shaped that helped shape the kind of your career and, and mold who you are um, today. Well, one of uh, one of those could be. Uh, let me let me think it through properly. Well, one would be really the decision of strategic pivot, uh, and people use that word for uh, they take that word for granted. But for me, it was important, right? You, you essentially think that once you study and uh, you are 
put in place somewhere uh, you you envision you are 18 to 22 whatever your, your first uh, you know job out of school that that's the first step of the ladder and i think maybe in uh, 20th century right it, it was still true people people were able to climb that career ladder relatively uh, in straight line but nowadays and i've seen it firsthand myself you gotta be ready to change your life 360 degrees sometimes so at any at any moment and uh, for me that was kind of uh, a really critical critical part of uh, being ready and being willing to do it uh, out of complete you know it, it takes you out of your comfort zone essentially automatically and uh, you know older you get new beginnings means that you kind of feeling is it too late to start and uh, I don't know if I pronounce his name uh, right, but uh, there is uh, uh, Gary Vaynerchuk, uh, marketer. He does a lot of things on LinkedIn as well. And uh, one thing that I kind of started listening to him and his podcast actually a lot, uh, maybe five, six years ago. And when he wasn't yet even that big, and now I'm listening to what he's saying more and more. And he says that all the time in 21st century, where we live at this stage, it's never too late to start, to never too late to do something. So for me, that's pretty much what uh, is maybe the most foundational moment in, in a career that I'm never shy. And I would recommend it to everybody, right? Never be shy to start, uh, start again if it doesn't work. It's, it's better to start fresh and from scratch than try to get and stick with something that you know and you hate or you cannot do or, you know, it doesn't work out and just try to stay there because that's what you've known for whole life. So that, that, that's pretty much probably kind of most critical moment of me because those fresh starts were always happening for me. And in the end, those fresh starts are the one that keeps me driving now, right? A lot of new startups, <laughs> a lot of new ideas. And uh, now I have never enough of the new things. Uh, I'm actually striving and <laughs> starting those new things. So back then it was scaring me. Now it's kind of my day-to-day uh, -day bread and butter. Yeah, that's really exciting too, because looking back in hindsight, you could think, wow, that you know these were some of the most pivotal moments that kind of molded my career per, uh, trajectory. And you, you're completely right in, in terms of getting outside of your comfort zone too, and just being able to really start experiencing new things versus, you know, kind of going with what the safe option is. And it feels like, especially nowadays with the younger generation, a lot of that kind of confidence is being instilled too. So it's really exciting because as you can see that, that be able to play out and, you know, younger, the going back to the younger generation, starting new startups and creating exciting companies and, um, especially in Cambodia, where uh, there's a, a lot of activity. So um, maybe yeah, going, yeah, and maybe going back. So what made you want to leave your home country to settle full-time abroad in Cambodia? Well, that was that, was that moment, you know, I, I kind of had to, uh, not, not just Cambodia. First, the decision was to move away to be able to actually commercially satisfy and settle the prior obligations right that came with a study and uh, that career of choice of the, the aviation of being the pilot that was kind of my dream job so in order to continue that and in order to be able to make it there was not enough opportunities in czech republic so 
uh, that's what kind of got me out of the country. Uh, in retrospect, looking at it now, I would probably love to retire back in Europe at some point, but I would never want to, uh, at least unless I'm missing something, you know, and it has changed so much in past 10 years uh, as dramatically. But uh, in retrospect, I see that uh, it's much more opportunity somewhere like here in Cambodia or in Asia or in other developing regions than there ever be in, in Europe. So uh, I'm, I'm happy for it. But the Cambodia was really, and it sounds people always ask is such a, you know, they're looking for romance, what kind of romantic reason for it. But uh, the Cambodia specifically was very pragmatic. It's uh, started fintech startup here because it, we could own business 100%. And second biggest consideration was really putting my passport, I'm from Czech Republic, my wife's passport, she's from Philippines, and saying which country in Asia, at least back then, right? Uh, which country you can go that we can just take all of our possessions, all of our suitcases, move there, start business and live there without actually going back and forth. Uh, I don't know if you know how it works with uh, Thai tourism. You go to Thailand, you need to leave country every every three months to kind of extend the pass, uh, your passport visa validity. In Cambodia, it was super easy to get a one-year visa and really get started. So we decided, okay, that's, that's it. We, we, will, we will try that. And, uh, you know, and since then, we, we really, really stayed. Uh, but funnily enough, if you try to do research, there are not many countries like that. So Cambodia for those early entrepreneurs was really perfect fit. And now it's much harder, of course, to get work, uh, work visa and everything else. But it's still probably much more friendlier than uh, trying to go to Thailand and start your own business in Thailand or uh, Malaysia, for example. And, and thinking back on in 2011, 2012, what were a few of the key things you know now, whether it's work or life, that you wish you had been told day one in Cambodia when you arrived? Well, so in Cambodia specific and business, I'll try to skip a couple of points. I was I was thinking, and uh, you know, when I knew that you'll be asking uh, around this question, what what should I mention and what should I shouldn't I mention? So I'll just start maybe with the uh, with kind of more generic one. Uh, specifically for Cambodia, I think that uh, what I didn't know, and it would be, have been much easier for me if I knew that in the beginning, is that uh, it's, it's really different culture. Uh, you know, everybody has uh, different, uh, different perspectives. And I came here, uh, I used to, I was happy to be here, but I still, I used to complain about every single thing that people don't work the way I like them to work. And the tuk-tuks don't drive the way I want them to work. The traffic is worse than I would want the traffic to be. Uh, and uh, working culture, definitely, right? It's very, very different how uh, inside of company, how people, uh, how people react, uh, how people react to criticism, uh, what's important to them, what's not important to them. The cultural element of Cambodia has been, uh, I, I consider myself actually very uh, adaptable. Uh, I can adjust to different uh, countries, uh, multi multiculturalist, uh, but definitely it's been in work environment has been a little bit of shocker, and it took probably a few years before I really fully fully adjust and embraced uh, embraced that one. Uh, in 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 general, what uh, what would kind of uh, you know be something that I wished I knew before, uh, 
I don't know. I had few few things prepared. I think may, maybe uh, maybe I'll mention the personal side of it, uh, the marriage element, because uh, I got married when we came to Cambodia, just before we came to Cambodia. So for me, Cambodia and you know personal life is also kind of tied uh, tied together. Uh, I talk a lot in work, and uh, surprisingly enough, I almost don't talk at all at home. Uh, so. Uh, what I'm still learning and what I'm still working on, and I wish I knew that back then before we signed marriage contract, uh, that people got to talk. You know, I, I would sometimes just love to come home, shut myself up, and uh, you know, don't talk to anybody. But then you have wife, you have kids, and uh, the element of conversation is something that maybe not just me, maybe many other people uh, underestimate how powerful tool it, it can be. So uh, yeah, I think those those are two core parts that I wish I knew before I started in Cambodia, in business and in marriage. You talked about how when you first got to Cambodia, it was very easy to set up your own business. What is yeah? So what has that process been like as um, as you've started a few companies here? Can, can you talk to us about some of the um, some of the businesses that you've been involved in, and how that how those have um, panned out? Uh, Sure. Uh, I assume you don't mean just um, to go through how the incorporation process works, but how it worked with a couple of those businesses. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. So, okay. Yeah. yeah. So like maybe just tell the audience about, um, you know, maybe what, what was your, so you said you, you originally got involved in the fintech space. Uh, could you talk us through a little bit about how that, how that unfolded and um, yeah, if you're still excited about uh, fintech in Cambodia. Oh yeah, def- definitely. So yeah, it's a good point to start. So uh, the Pipe was the fintech company that we started. Uh, there were a few others before, and uh, and that my own that we brought from US, right? But Pipe was something that kind of catched on, and uh, the, that's what kind of made me. Actually, that, that's a also transition transition to the word Dome asking in the beginning. What uh, kind of pivoted me, or what uh, founded my uh, my knowledge and my experience and who I am today, it would definitely be Pipe because it was kind of my first venture that was uh, not uh, too big right away from start. So it wasn't corporate environment. It was really startup from scratch where I was uh, founder and employee uh, and everything on the day one. But that grew into like 200, 250 people in 18 months. Okay. Okay, and just before we uh, get into Brixy, maybe just tell us um, how you see fintech in Cambodia today, and uh, what, like, mm-hmm. what within that sector are you excited about? Well, I think that uh, you know, f- first of all, and this one should be conversation on on its own, like for hours and hours, like what is fintech, right? But but it, it simply put, uh, fintech is to me, uh, it was always payments. And, and, you know, buy payables in payments, right? So the payment processing, mobile payments, digital banking, that kind of was for me core uh, core element of fintech. But as you go and as I'm part of uh, various different startup ecosystems and everything else, I learned very quickly that the payments is just a tip of the iceberg, right? Uh, fintech is core part of various other tech ventures. Uh, and in Cambodia, you know, uh, we have starting to see notions of agri-tech, we start seeing notions of health tech uh, and so on. So, uh, you know, I think that payments venture in Cambodia will continue to uh, try to make it 
I'm not saying they will keep uh, thriving because the ecosystem here is extremely competitive uh, because there is not much difference of uh, what you can do as a digital payment provider versus what you can do as a, a bank. But all those other elements of fintechs uh, are really representing still massive, massive opportunity. So uh, I think as a sector, if you don't box it just for the payments, fintech in Cambodia is uh, definitely one vertical I would keep an eye on from the investment perspective and growth perspective. Uh, j just look at e-commerce, how, how much e-commerce has potential and how still behind it is many other, many other countries, right? Think about blockchain in general, think about uh, any wealth management, assets management, even insurance is way behind here compared to many other countries. Like it's, we are so underinsured in Cambodia. It's, uh, um, yeah, uh, I, I think that's one of the verticals that could be definitely invested much more than they are now. But I think that we cost it ourselves, you know, because if you just say uh, invest into fintech and you offer to investors just the payment companies that they do QR code and saying that they will be next Alipay uh, or, or WeChat or, you know, PayPal, then of course you won't get as many investors because people are not silly anymore. You know, it's just, you cannot keep pumping money into the same red ocean market, right? But often they forget that there's much more into it than just that payment side. You've been now kind of transitioning back into the uh, startup space. What's that pivot been like for you moving from like a, you know, as you said, a 250 person company and like, you know, running that company to now um, getting more stuck in with uh, being a founder again? How's that, how's that, how's that been for you? Well, in, in theory, I'm still, it's not easy to fully transition from company like that. So in theory, I'm still uh, involved in some format of advisory capacity there, but uh, that uh, allowed me that smooth transition into that, uh, into those other verticals, right? Into like, uh, into the startup, startup ecosystem. So uh, what I would say that why I don't think so, that it was any shocker for me uh, or that Brixy, for example, starting new new company really like uh, in b2c focused business uh because for example i i started the consulting company right which is b2b it's different uh, completely different entity it's mainly about connections building solid network and uh, having good foundational processes so it's fairly straightforward uh, at, at least it was for, for me uh starting fintech association same thing it's more process driven so it's uh, and you never rely just on yourself you are you are not just one founder you know who starts the entire association right uh but uh Going into starting Brixy, you're right. It's definitely oh, back from square one, from scratch. Let's start something. Uh, but because I'm working with 500 Global uh, and with few other organizations in Cambodia and outside, they are part of startup world. And know that I would have invested a lot, but I'm done myself a couple of angel uh, investment gigs. So you know, trying to support the ecosystem. Uh, I think. I've never left that ecosystem. And so it, I, it wasn't shock for me to be back. Uh, yeah, you know, only thing that maybe changed slightly is that uh, as a mentor, as a board director, as maybe investor, uh, you are starting things from scratch uh, or you're supporting things that start from scratch, but you don't have to do everything yourself, right? Where only kind of slapped through my face was realization uh, when it comes to Brixie saying that 
uh, yeah, actually, it's I want to do something and I have to do it. It's not like that I can look all left and right and delegate to somebody, right? So often, and people forget it very quickly. I definitely, at least, forgot it very quickly. You know that it's not just the perfect plan, perfect ideas, but that starting it from scratch means that you will have to do it yourself. That you will have to go and design that website and go and uh, write that business plan and go to that meeting you don't want to go because there is simply not anybody you can just say, hey, uh, handle that one for me. So that's only kind of uh, thing that I needed to be reminded in hard way uh, last few months when I started the venture again. Okay, yeah. And um, tell us about Brixie. What, what is Brixie in a, in a brief synopsis? What, what, what are you trying to build now? Oh, um, I think in simplest word, it would be, uh, token, I can describe it as a tokenization, uh, crowdsourcing uh, of real estate assets and tradings of those tokens tied to those real estate assets. So it's uh, not necessarily crypto-based solution, but it's blockchain-based solution that uh, aims to accept both crypto and fiat currencies uh, and enabling pretty much anybody from $1 up to invest even though you know i'm trying to stay away from investment board uh, because it scares people uh, but to purchase real estate assets from one dollar up so that, that that's kind of a brief a brief description in uh, one sentence or in few sentences okay and tell us tell us about this is this uh, space globally like what does the landscape look like um is this quite a new area of um tokenization blockchain technology like what how do you how does what you're trying to do compare to some of the competition out there this this vertical actually is not new at all you know everybody thinks uh, i i don't know if you had it but you know most of the entrepreneurs uh, you start fan venture you think that you, you are best that you are only one right uh, until somebody shows you that there, there is uh, comp- competition so so definitely uh, first idea was you know that uh, pink glasses we are best we are only ones but definitely you know that this vertical the tokenization of assets has been around forever. Uh, I mean, since pretty much blockchain technologies were around, but uh, specifically even tokenization of real estate assets have been around. But most of the companies, uh, when those ideas, you can kind of do Google research backwards. So they had these things 2014, 2015, 16. Uh, but thing is that most of them failed very quickly. And I think they were simply to too early to the market uh, because you know regulation on tokenization back then and especially you know tokenization that would be tied to any form of commercial uh, benefits against the tokenization was so foreign to everybody everybody just knew crypto side of it right so nobody actually was able to crack through licensing process now you have more and more companies working in the space of fractional ownership and tokenization uh, but everybody has slight different approaches. So what I think is main difference for us is uh, compared to global global competition uh, is that we really, first of all, we trying to be global and uh, we think that we figure out licensing element that is completely unique compared to anyone else uh, that allows us to be global. So we combining essentially NFTs, 
uh, we combine security token element and we combine stablecoin element all into essentially uh, same uh, same ownership unit. So whatever you own, uh, whatever square meter or portion of the property you have, it's tied to those three different indicators to NFT security token and uh, stablecoin at the same time, which is uh, something that nobody else is doing yet in this in this fashion. And second big differentiation for us is that we uh, kind of focusing on two core business verticals. One is the traditional properties and uh, like apartment buildings and so on and so forth. And then green assets. So we will be offering when we launch uh, just fractional ownership of uh, forested areas and its protection. So really kind of trying to go uh, that green, green element uh, as well. Versus most of the other uh, companies, they would use the tokenization of fractional ownership as a development funding, almost crowdsourcing of development funds so they can develop the property. Where we trying to stay away from speculative deals, at least uh, in the beginning. Got it. And just quickly for our audience, so through tokenization, this means that the in the case of Brixie, that the tangible asset or the real estate can be divided into digital tokens that represents fractional ownership of the asset. And then these tokens would be traded securely on a blockchain ledger and made accessible to investors worldwide in that case. Is that that's correct? Yes, absolutely correct. Uh, we, we will not actually even buy the property, right? So you let's say you are owner of the property, uh, you will put it on a platform, you tokenize the property, you sell uh, whatever amount of tokens you want to uh, willing buyers, if buyers are there through the platform. Uh, and uh, the property ownership is uh, in form of secured escrow with Brixie. So you, the moment you tokenize the property, you don't hold the property rights, you hold the token rights. And that's kind of our security for the users and future buyers, of course. And everything around blockchain, uh, open ledger, so very, very public, very transparent, uh, kind of with almost vision slash mission of you know democratizing uh, those those investments and the trade, because we will not influence the trade in any any fashion at all. So it's up to you uh, for how much you buy. Uh, we will give you all information about property and your tokens uh, as as much we can. Will even be doing independent valuations of the properties, but it's up to you uh, at what price point you come into it, uh, how long you sit on it, how you trade it. Uh, it's really fully up to the uh, users, kind of creating the decentralized autom autonomous organization almost. Okay, and you also mentioned about the uh, the regulatory component. Where where are you aiming to be regulated, and what are some of the jurisdictions where? Where this kind of thing is, um, is uh, do you have like friendly regulators? Oh, the, the, just just from a high level, from industry perspective, you know, friendly regulators are uh, pretty much anywhere where there are no regulators. So any you know any offshore pile, uh, paradise, you know, uh, but like British Virgin Islands and so on and so forth. But we don't go there because uh, sooner or later, even they will have to regulate. And uh, it doesn't have good image, right? There's no security for neither us as a company and uh, also not for users. So uh, what we opted for is that we are a Singaporean incorporated company. 
uh, where we have the technology structure set up there uh, and licensing we are doing out of Estonia uh, because you know it brings uh, good uh, security and uh, contractual protection to users from European Union perspective uh, but is super crypto friendly uh, it's super digital uh, Estonia is one of the most digitalized countries in the world right so uh, that, that's why we that's why we chose chose that but uh, because the point of entry for our users is not through security token security token is only that one that holds the uh, commercial uh, commercial attributes of each token uh, we splitting the property into NFTs and NFTs can be pretty much traded anywhere. It's not uh, tied necessarily to uh, any crypto license. So uh, that's why we will be able to advertise and trade pretty much anywhere uh, around the world. Understood. And what are some of the advantages over traditional methods of dealing with real estate that Brexy will offer aside from just the access to ability of buying these fractional ownerships of real estate with things like liquidity, transparency, enhancing security, would these be additional advantages that Brixie would offer to users? Yeah, well, I think it depends how unsecure it is to buy property somewhere else. I don't think so, you know, that we, uh, we would uh, be that much valuable from the security perspective, for example, yeah, other than when you own physical physical piece of paper. Uh, but uh, we will definitely match that security side because it's public, right? It's on public ledger. Uh, but where, where it comes, uh, I think, more secure uh, and more transparent is compared to other investment platforms, right? Uh, because uh, it is public. It works with a decentralized concept in mind. So you remove the speculations out of the equation, which, uh, you know, if you are doing uh, crypto, traditional crypto investments, uh, it's highly, highly speculative. When uh, if you would be doing normal stock market investments, might be less speculative, even though we all know that uh, the big boys uh, out there, they, they make in their own speculations. They make it. We have also, you know, traditional uh, movers and shakers in that sector as well. Uh, so in our sense, it will, it will give you something that at least we hope that we will be able to launch uh, the user experience onto the level that will, will simplify it to the users to the maximum. Uh, and they will essentially feel that this is same as buying, uh, I don't know, new new phone in, in the shop, uh, right? Versus when you do and treat anything else as an investment, it really comes with a lot of caveats and uh, you better be knowledgeable about uh, about what you do. Otherwise, you're risking that you will lose a lot of, a lot of funds. For, for us, uh, you know, why we think that this one is more secure uh, investment and pretty much anything else is that sure markets will go up and down but uh, as long as you own land or whatever piece of property even uh, though the property prices uh, might be dropping in times of recession at some point it will go back back up right the cost of living across the world will increase in decades to come will be running out of space. So definitely anybody who owns real estate property sooner or later will realize the appreciation of, of, that, uh, of that asset they, they have. Uh, and then, as you mentioned, the, the, the main one is really assets uh, because, uh, and that's how we started. 
you know, it, it came up as a via new generation of entrepreneurs. And uh, I, have, I have two kids personally, and a couple of co-founders. So they, they have also children. And think about it, how easy or hard it is to buy new property. It's pretty much impossible for nowadays uh, generation to go and acquire something that would be really sizable in area they like, right? Because it's simply so expensive, and uh, you already spend tons of money on the school. You have probably some debt in the, for the education, and then suddenly you need to find, uh, you need to get more money from bank to acquire property. We're trying to bridge that gap and essentially say, let's start saving. You hit your 18, let's start saving. Start buying one person or you know one dollar, ten dollar stakes in various properties, and by the time you are 30, 35 you hopefully will be able to consolidate it into something more tangible and bigger that you can you can move in. So uh, yeah, the access to the, to that uh, and long-term investments uh, perspective of it is to, to us the biggest benefit. And then how does it work with, um, you, you said about, you know, you have 1% of a property, um, you know, kind of makes me, reminds me slightly of like timeshares uh, in the US, which I think has been quite a popular concept. But at what point do you actually are you actually able to go and like live at that at that property, for instance? Like, are you going to be able to enforce that? Like, let's say someone, let's say you have a property that you've got uh, 10, 10% shareholders. Do they then all get to stay there for 36 days of the year? Like, is that is that something that you're going to be involved in? Or um, I just kind of wonder how uh, the living yeah. element works. It's it's really really good point, and uh, we will definitely be building the voting uh, voting mechanism there into every uh, property that we have. Uh, it won't be probably live right away at MVP stage, but uh, we we have it in mind. Uh, it, it depends on uh, what happens to the property in the beginning, right? If you are owner of the house, for example, and you're selling just ten percent of the fraction. Uh, the person who is buying it uh, and has just 10% vote or 10% stake in it, uh, of course, has just 10% strong voice, right? Because you as an owner of the house keeping 90% of the tokens might not necessarily uh, want to move out. Maybe you still live there. Uh, and But you also, if you're buying just 10% of the house, you probably count on it as a more investment uh, mean, right? Uh, rather than just that you want to do it for your, for your purchase, for your acquisition. But ultimately, uh, let's say if it's property that's 100% owned by token holders and you have 10 of them uh, the, and it's apartment that can be rented out, uh, the voting mechanism will allow, of course, to post the contract and uh, you can choose. Is it for timeshare that you will be staying in across? It, you can vote for it. But uh, if not, if it's purely property for renting it out, it can be leased out by anyone, right? And then you, uh, as an owner of it from 10% perspective, you will be getting 10% on your rent, of course, and you will have to pay the rent unless you own full full house. Uh, but uh, you will be able to use the voting mechanism to uh, to move in or to propose the ideas what to do with the, uh, with the place. Great. And, and what do you think are going to be some of the biggest challenges uh, with, with scaling and growing this business? Uh, the... It's kind of good good problem to have, but I think that it will be massive problem, massive challenge. Is that I, I know that BRICS will not work if you just do it in one market. Uh, you know, we had a couple of people suggesting just launch it, let's say in Cambodia or launch it in UK only or in Spain only, and then from that country you will go uh, you will go bigger. But in in schemes like this, 
you got to be global right away. We cannot rely just on one country, one country's regulation, uh, one property, uh, one market development, right? Because uh, that country might look what's happening in Europe, right? Imagine that we started in that particular country, uh, that business would be gone, right? So our diversification of the assets and diversification of countries we are in, uh, it's key. So having assets across the globe having users across the globe will be will be extremely important. But then it comes to uh, launching things in Cambodia or in UK, Spain, US, you know what it will take, you know how much money it will take, and you know how to approach users, right? Every country is specific. Like in Cambodia, it would be super easy to just launch Facebook campaign, for example. In US, it would have to be something else. But now imagine if you do it globally, do it at the same time, we will have to do it across all those countries tailor mode for those countries at the same time and uh, not break a bank for it, right? So uh, it will be our biggest challenge is essentially to ensure that we can launch at scale without actually being billionaires and launch it across at least few jurisdictions at the same time. So uh, that, that's kind of my biggest worry and will be definitely biggest challenge. If you put the regulatory and tec technical, uh, technical elements aside, but those are all doable, right? The, the execution crooks and hopes will be all uh, in the marketing element towards the scale. Okay, yeah. And um, what has it been like communicating this to investors and uh, going about the initial like um, fundraise? Uh, how's that process been for you? Uh, surprisingly, great surprisingly positive but at the same time disaster <laughs> i know i'm contracting myself but i'll, I'll explain uh surprisingly great because we uh, pretty much closed our ideation round uh and just we, we still have just few uh, few percent missing to to give but everything else was very very quickly like our biggest chunk of our ideation round came in first uh six weeks of asking for investments but the bad part of it or the most challenging part of it was to explain the concept in different language and by that i don't mean uh, english i mean in different uh, notion of language to different type of investors so uh, you have guys who for example understand crypto and understand uh, blockchain very well uh, we tried same pitch as uh, we did to our one of the first investors who is uh, you know very successful entrepreneur in FMCG side, never had anything to do with technology, doesn't understand technology, doesn't care necessarily for the technology, but like the idea. So we built the pitch for him. Uh, you know, he was super happy. He understood how, how this one could work. Those crypto guys were looking at us and saying, yeah, but you have no idea what you're talking about. It's, it's nonsense. Uh, from the from the sense because we use different language, right? We were using wrong terminologies for them because we tried to use same terminologies we were using for the FMCG guy. So in the end, we realized that we have to have multiple uh, and it's dozens of different versions of the pitch. And uh, depending on who we're pitching to, uh, using those different versions and then switching those mindsets towards those, right? So some people are really just much more focused on the tech. Some people are very, very particular about the marketing. Uh, same thing what I was talking about. You know, they are they don't care the same technology will do, licensing you will do, but how are you gonna scale it? How are you gonna do this? How are you gonna 
commercialize it. Uh, then you have people who are just particular, for example, only about licensing side. So the pitch and discussion uh, investment considerations, they're all about, are you going to be able to get a license? Is it gonna work legally, right? Do you have this contract, do you have that contract? So uh, just having very diverse group of investors, which helps us strategically, that uh, was incredibly difficult to position that pitch that would fit all of them. And I kind of foresee that this one will be challenged also, you know, you ask about that uh, biggest challenge and I mentioned marketing at scale that will be also challenged to the public, right? How do you explain it in uniform language that will fit all, which is probably not, not possible. So we will have to have multiple messaging, multiple positioning. Okay, and just, yeah, last question from me on this. Um, what is it like the current environment in Cambodia for blockchain tokenization? I know there's been a few examples recently of companies that have tried to raise in this category. Uh, I believe Z1 or uh, Zelenium uh, Group mm -hmm. have been involved yeah. in this. Um, I know there's Ritty Tool with Solendra. Um, you know, he's been thinking about these kinds of things. Um, what, yeah, how, just how do you see that? How do you see the overall appetite for it here? Oh, appetite is probably still hard or difficult word to, to categorize it in. Uh, when you say blockchain, people think crypto. That's still majority of the population. So they, they still don't understand the you know, fundamentals of uh, blockchain is essentially excellent infrastructure tool, right? Uh, the crypto side is just one of the one of the ways how you how you work around it. Uh, but because of blockchain equals crypto in Cambodia, you have that big pool of gray area traders here, right? That they, they do actually a very active crypto trading in Cambodia. Uh, but unofficially, because crypto is still officially banned and probably will stay that way for a while. So I think that the crypto sites won't change. Uh, so what I think is starting slowly to change, and that's the Z1, that's the Solyndra, and, and at some point, hopefully, us and a few others, uh, is the tokenization side and the blockchain side, right? The blockchain should not be looked at as something that should be banned. Uh, or that should be, you know, frowned upon uh, and should be just used as a, one of the uh, tech, available tech for, for Cambodian startups and for, for new Cambodian business models. Cambodia has actually uh, fractional ownership concepts. Uh, if you want to do it out of here, if you want to like license it here and run it out of Cambodia, they have crowdsourcing licensing as well. It's still very early because it's just fresh licenses. So who, Nobody actually properly knows how it works. It's not as easy to get definitely as, for example, in Thailand or Estonia, but it's uh, it's getting there. But I think the biggest challenge for people will be just to embrace that blockchain doesn't mean uh, crypto and we still have a little, little way to go in, uh, in that, from that perspective. And as we transition into the last section of the podcast, uh, discussing habits and advice, I, I want to get started with asking you a quick curveball question. And that is, if you were a fly on the wall in history, where would you be and why? And I'm just because I couldn't remember the date actually without me writing it down. So uh, I disclosed this for, for everyone. <laughs> I have it written on the, on the paper <laughs> front of me. But, no uh, but the mo moment I remember, but I just wanted to also say the date. So 15 March, 44 BC, uh, just before the uh, Julius Caesar died. 
because you, you know i'm a big believer that uh, sometimes uh, even individuals can change the big things or in his case i think he changed the course of history uh, even in his unfortunate demise um, so I think, you know, if there was chance to somehow distract Brutus and <laughs> let Caesar live, I think that we could have been up for some, something, uh, even probably we would be much more developed civilization if, uh, if that moment hasn't happened. So I, I would definitely try to do something, uh, if I could do something as a fly in, in that particular moment. Understood. And what are, what habits do you install on yourself to stay self-accountable or motivated? Uh, a, a lot, but I, you know, I'm still, I'm still learning and practicing. So I don't want this word to come across as a, that I'm preaching that people, people need to do. But I'm, what works for me a lot uh, is that I try to slot everything in calendars uh, because more things I take on myself, like more startup activities and uh, more mentorship activities. And, uh, you know, you just keep piling up different different things, which is great. But then you learn that if you just don't discipline yourself with the uh, calendars and schedules, then it simply, it will just be big mess. It doesn't work. So I, I have actually dedicated time for sports, dedicated time for family, for wife, uh, for learning. Uh, my own like self-management time and self, you know, the, the kind of do my own bookkeeping, saying uh, what time I need to spend on different things, what time I need to spend on, on uh, different businesses. Uh, and uh, I know yet the Elon Musk, you know, he has the five minutes rule. I think it's five minutes. He started with 20 minutes, but now it's apparently five minutes that he switches different tasks, five minutes by five minutes. Uh, I'm it didn't work out. I tried all these, all, all the tricks possible, but simply the five minutes didn't work out for me. But uh, I haven't input time yet, but definitely I'm switching uh, tasks across the day. So, you know, if you put me into a room, uh, I would not be probably able to, uh, well, I would, but it wouldn't be enjoyable for me and probably not as effective or efficient uh, to do one thing for eight hours straight. So I tend to like do 20 minutes of this start or this particular task. Let's say let's work on commercial proposal somewhere. And then uh, other 20 minutes or 30 minutes or one hour, I would do uh, business planning writing. Uh, then I would do 30 minutes mentorship call with somebody. So, uh, yeah, you know, that variety and diversity of those tasks, it, it keeps you... Uh, keeps you fresh through everything, or at least me, keeps me fresh through every single thing that I do. Uh, because I, I find myself, at least, if I try to do something for a couple of hours straight, it bears you down very, very quickly. So the switching and multitasking is kind of a good, surprisingly good self-discipline tool. Yeah, and it's interesting that you you mentioned the calendar and having everything organized there. Max and I discuss this all the time about how even for coffees or meeting up with friends, it is, it's just so much more uh, efficient and just in, in ease of mind to know that you have the ability to just look at your calendar and know when you're doing things. Uh, I, I know that recently with my friends, we've kind of joked about how we've become, you know, quote unquote, so adult since uh, 
putting, you know, times on each other's calendars to be able to <laughs> hang out. But it's, uh, you know, I guess it's just a necessary thing that we have to do these days as everybody is starting to become more involved with whether it's work or life or, you know, any, anything in between that. So And because very, very draw the line, right? Also work and business. Yeah. Sometimes it's combined together, right? So if you don't have it in calendar, I guess, yeah, yeah, I fully agree with you. Definitely. What do people misunderstand about you the most? Many things. I also prepared for that one. So I'm looking what I what I what I wrote in my paper that I'll be I'll be talking about. But uh, yeah, I have. It's not just misunderstanding that they actually uh, I'm doing it, so I'm aware of it. It's and it's my bad kind of negative side of it. Uh, I don't say no too often. Uh, and it's almost like, you know, they, the people say that sometimes uh, you can, uh, how, how would that saying goes? Don't mistake in my kindness for weakness. Uh, but I think in, in my case, it's often swapped around uh, and I'm supporting it and, uh, you know, adding the oil into the fire because I simply, I haven't still learned how to say no uh, often enough. So that, that definitely is often misunderstood. At least I, I feel it that way that, uh, you know, by me being kind doesn't mean that uh, I'm, you know, not assertive enough or strong enough to push things through. Uh, then other part probably on personal life would be um, my silence. Uh, I just, I talk a lot in work and uh, when I'm with friends or, you know, and it's not work related, and it's not in business meeting or it's at home, I just tend to shut and just, you know, read book or be, be quiet or watch movie, whatever it is. But I, I tend not to talk too much. So uh, it's so often kind of being misunderstood that I'm being arrogant or that I don't like to talk to people or something. So that, that definitely there. And then uh, my temper even though in business probably most people don't know but if uh, sometimes yes uh, but as a friend they, they will definitely attest to it uh, you know i can get very uh, i'm impatient i can get angry very quickly but i also uh, you know i also forget like in two minutes so you and i can have argument now and uh, in 30 minutes i'll come to you and you know i'll say let's go to cinema and you still might be, and most of the people still will be boiling and like hating me for that particular moment, while I actually completely forget already why we were fighting. So I'm very, you know, very quickly hot and cold, uh, and that's that's often being misunderstood because it's kind of uh, you you taking. Oh, hold on! I promise that I won't be cursing. You're making fun of somebody. Uh, I want to use different term for it. Uh, if if you know if you know we are, we are angry at some point and I switch completely, I start talking about different topic, you might be thinking that I'm even teasing you more or aggravating you more because I'm ignoring the, the problem. But in my mind, you know, we already argued about it, it's done. It's problem solved. Uh, let's let's move on. So that's definitely those three things probably. Great. Thank you for going through this three. And uh, I can I can relate to the to the second one as well. It's in terms of decompression from a busy work day or anything else that may have you know been could have been overwhelming for the day as well. You know, some people may go about, you know, expressing that through, you know, going out with friends and, you know, kind of putting that work aside and being sociable in that. But in other ways, kind of the decompression is more with yourself and being able to 
kind of relax with with your own thoughts and being able to mm-hmm. like indulge in whether like you said a book or a movie or something where you know you you kind of just have that your your own time which is def- which is incredibly important too i mean you know as as much as in the work day as you give to others it's important to take time for yourself to be reflective or to relax or decompress or however you would want to describe it yeah um what is the most formative book that you have ever read oh and i was thinking hard about this uh and usually you know people would probably go with some uh, some uh, philosophy books or with something they read when they were young but i was a lot into uh you know fiction books back then uh, when, when i was child and I've, I've read a lot so i don't think so that i have any anything like formative from childhood but business wise uh it's definitely the art of innovation by tom kelly uh there, there's company ideals is u.s company and they did tons of you know, even the if people don't know but even the push card you know in the shopping malls that that you have in, in current design with a seat for the kids and everything else that's actually ideos design so it's a great uh, innovation company that uh, they uh, they do a lot of uh, they take standard things uh, and it can be anything from medicine to uh, normal retail and uh, they have specific innovation methodology five step process and uh, that that company is uh, has been behind one of the most incredible designs in past uh, 20 20 years or 25 30 years so uh, definitely, you know, and I've read it so many times, uh, every time, you know, I do any mentoring or even thinking about my own products, I'm trying to use the methodologies they, they use and, uh, and uh, use a couple of examples they, uh, they uh, mention in the book. So it's definitely a book I would recommend to anybody who wants to start product or service focused startup and want to do some things differently that uh, is current status quo. It's, it's worth the read. And our traditional closing question that we like to ask each of our guests is, what is the most important piece of advice that you've ever been given? Oh, that, that's actually uh, from Kylot, one of the uh, PyPace uh, board directors. And he's the first one who kind of brought it up to me. Uh, remember I was saying that uh, one of the don't mistake kindness for weakness thing, uh, he's the one who pointed out and that it's closely related to uh, uh, saying no. He told me once, uh, we put me into a meeting room and say, it's time to grow up. Just learn how to say no. That, that, that's, that's all he said. He didn't give any further explanations, but he, he was very angry at the point. That was one of our heated moments we had. But uh, definitely, and, I'm, and I've done a lot of digging into it and uh, I, I can relate. I, I know why people are saying it. And I also know why, uh, you know, once people are mature enough, uh, that they know how to say no because it's related to prioritization to many other things, right? It's we are not on this world to please absolutely everybody, and we cannot because it's physically and uh, mentally impossible, uh, and, and also probably sometimes uh, not right thing to do. So uh, definitely, uh, anybody who tells me learn how to say no, they're giving me probably the most important advice I, I'm ever getting. Well, on that note, thank you so much for taking the time today with us, Tomas. We really appreciate appreciate all of the insights, your background, and we're especially excited to see the rollout of Brixie over the next 
coming months as well. And uh, look forward to keeping in touch and speaking soon. Oh, thank you, Roman, Max. Uh, really appreciate it as well for having me. Thank you.